This is The Think Tank with Dr. Michael Neal, talking about the major political, economic, and social issues of the week. The Think Tank, KTAR News on 92.3 FM and KTAR.com. Our guest is gubernatorial candidate Matt Salmon. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Uh, in previous weeks, we have had uh, your opponent, Karen Taylor Robeson, on. Great. And as of this morning, until 7.30 this morning, Carrie Lake was to follow you in the next segment. She developed a scheduling conflict. We hope to get her back. There you go. That's That's the status of where we are. Okay. You have had... An entire career as a legislator, a congressman, really traditional conservative Republican. Uh, you started out as the sort of reasonable man candidate. Uh, at some point, it looked like you were trying to reinvent yourself as a sort of angry white guy, Trump clown uh, that doesn't seem to me to fit. Where do you fit on that spectrum? And, and, and how would you like to be known in this race? I got into uh politics during the uh, election uh, at, between uh, Gerald Ford and Ronald Reagan, and I was a Ronald Reagan supporter. I have been a diehard Ronald Reagan supporter my whole life. I loved his policies. I think they are great, and I think we need to get back to uh, uh, governing in a very, very conservative way. And is in your mind, is Donald Trump a conservative? So when I look at the spending and that's one of the flashpoints for me of what a real conservative is. And I look at the spending uh, during COVID uh, and all the wasted money uh, that happened. I, I was very, very frustrated that the Congress and uh, the administration pushed through uh, the deficit spending uh, that uh, happened during the last several years. I, I'm a fiscal hawk. And um, the fact is, I believe that the inflation that people are now uh, dealing with is a direct result of the spending in Washington, D.C. I've always believed there's a nexus uh, between printing more money and inflation. Uh, I was uh, taught that in my economics classes, and I believed that my whole life, and I think we're seeing it up close and personal today. And I think we've got to get back to smaller government. And when I, I talk about smaller government, uh, just because it's some new idea on the right to create a new government agency to do X, Y, or Z, it doesn't make it any better. Uh, my, my personal feeling is that limited government is the best. Mm -hmm. uh, what may be a simple question, but some have made it not simple, who won the 2020 election? Well, we know who's in the White House, don't we? That's not the question. That's the answer. <laughs> I'm, is there any question in your mind about the legitimacy of that victory? I believe that elections have to have complete integrity, and I believe that there were uh, some issues. Uh, the The audit didn't produce any substantial uh, results that changed the face of the election. Mm -hmm. uh, nobody worked harder during the campaign uh, for me than a Republican in the White House. And uh, my wife and I'm I'm disappointed that it is the way it is now, but um, we've got to move uh, toward a ho hopefully a brighter future. I I think that characterization would apply to pretty much any election that you have with tens of millions of people voting. There are some irregular somewhere out of ten million anything done by human beings, something is going to be a rise somewhere. Yeah. yeah. But. Uh, 
I, I think I'm also hearing at least the inference, though not the direct statement, that whatever happened was was well within a normal range and not enough to change an outcome. Look, right now, and I and every everywhere uh, I go, uh, the question and it kind of baffles me a little bit because a lot of the folks in the media are saying, "Can't we move on uh, to the next issue?" But yet, the first question you always seem to be asked is, "What happened with the last election?" Uh, maybe because we, it's out there, <laughs> but, but maybe we need to be talking about. Uh, what we need to do to make sure that we have full integrity in our, in our next elections. And maybe we need to be talking about water and education and border security and safe streets and the things that matter to most citizens and inflation. Well, the other one that uh, – and this is in the category of sort of can't help myself it, because it's out there because everybody or certainly every Republican – talks about it first is the issue of immigration slash border security. Um, you know, uh, my, my question would be, there, if you don't go, to, I assume you've probably been to the border. Many times. Because, because you'll get criticized if you don't. I'm waiting for somebody to go. Isn't the problem in Guatemala and Honduras not at the border? People aren't coming to Arizona from Sonora. They're passing through Sonora from southern Mexico, Guatemala, Honduras. Isn't that where the problem is? I've actually been there. I was on the Foreign Affairs Committee uh, when I was a congressman and was part of a special task force that actually went over to Guatemala and Honduras Mm -hmm. and looked at uh, some of the issues there. But we can't get by the fact that the cartels are advertising in Guatemala and Honduras, Mm -hmm. and they've got billboards that say, uh, you know, and it depends on, uh, I guess, the circumstance. But for $5,000, we'll smuggle you across the American border, Mm -hmm. along with a little fentanyl and uh, maybe some uh, meth uh, amphetamines as well. Uh, The fact is the cartels are managing all of the illegal activity at the border. They are transporting uh, people and sex trafficking across the border. And, uh, in fact, I I was uh, at the border a few weeks ago and uh, talked to a CBP officer that said that uh, they they interdicted a woman that uh, had a bottle of uh, morning after pills. And they asked her why she had so many morning after pills. She said, because I I knew I was going to be raped several times along the way. This is a human rights uh, catastrophe of epic proportions. And it's going to take all hands on deck. And just to pretend that it's not happening, that doesn't do anybody any good either. I think that we've, we're better than this as a nation. The illegal activity that's happening at the border is 100% being done by the cartels. And it's beyond time that we should be ter- uh, designating them as a terrorist organization and pulling out every stop that we can to try to thwart them and stop them, just like we did in Planned Colombia uh, with uh, the help of uh, President uh, Uribe. Uh, at, at the time. We've got to get the political will in Mexico and find out the right uh, ways to get them motivated. But the cartels are a scourge on our planet, and we should do everything we can to eradicate them. The question I'd have about that is, granted everything you say about the cartels, but they wouldn't have any success, would they, if, they, if the economies and the, and the basic structure of society in Guatemala and Honduras were not 
absolutely desperate. But there's horrible, desperate situations all over the world. I mean, I've, I've been to many, over 100 countries, and I've seen dire circumstances in the in the Far East. Well, if, you, uh, if you're in dire circumstance in Syria, you right. go to Europe. If right. you're in Central America, you go— you, Right, right. But the, but, but the fact is, we cannot fix all of the world's problems. We cannot. The United States of America has always been a beacon of hope, and we've been that we, Ronald Reagan called shining city on the hill. And I'm not asking for us to dim that, but I do believe that our first and most important responsibility when we put our right hand to the square and say we're going to op- uphold the Constitution to defend it against all enemies, foreign and domestic, is to make sure that we're defending the Constitution of the United States and the people of the United States. That's our, that's our number one job. Okay, question about that. Yeah. For the last uh, 30 years, we have approached this problem with increasing security measures. From 86 to 2016, we increased our border security spending by a factor of 20. We are doing 20x what we used to. And all we seem to hear is calls to do more. Isn't it time to say we should do something different? Well, there for a time, there was a lot more border security when we had to effectively handle the Remain in Mexico policy for those people that are, uh, you know, throwing up their hands and asking for asylum. Uh, And by the way, uh, less than 10 percent of those people are ever approved for, for asylum and almost none of them ever show up for their asylum hearings, which are sometimes scheduled out for several years. So it's no wonder our, our, everything is so messed up. But the fact is there are border security things that work. I've met with the Customs and Border Patrol folks and the ICE folks on numerous occasions. And I asked them what kinds of new uh, appropriations they need and what kind of new help they need. And they said, we don't need more appropriations. We need our hands untied. And we need good policy. And what would untying hands be? To be able to enforce the law. And the law says that you you cannot come across the border illegally. And they want to be able to enforce the law. The morale there is at an all-time low because these people really want to do their job. They're law enforcement people. And they want to do their job. But they don't believe that they have the backing uh, of the administration. And I think that's a pretty fair argument. The situation at the border, and I think anybody who lives there uh, in Yuma will tell you that it is significantly, significantly worse than it was two years ago. Okay, we'll be back with Matt Salmon on other topics when we return in just a moment in the Think Tank. The Think Tank, KTAR News on 92.3 FM and KTAR.com. We are back with former congressman and gubernatorial candidate Matt Salmon. Welcome back. Thank you. Question for a couple of quicker questions. Yes, yeah, sure. Not that they're lesser issues. Guns. We've had another spate of mass shootings. Let me put it this way. What should Joe Biden do on this issue right now? What should Joe Biden do? Yeah. Gosh, that's a, that's a tough one. I have never placed myself in the situation mm-hmm. of being Joe Biden. Um, being a person actually that believes that the answer is to deal more with the mental health issues that we have in our country. Mm-hmm. Uh, my youngest son is a psychiatrist, adolescent psychiatrist, and we are chock full of mental health issues in this country that we are not dealing with, with very adequately. And then also double down on school safety. I would look for ways to provide uh, more uh, security at the schools. Uh, that would uh, allow a, a school resource officer at every school 
uh, because even in the time frame that you have to wait on a 9-11 call, uh, you know, it, 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 it could be uh, the, the difference between life and death of multiple people. Um, I think that the kids, uh, you know, I was just in Sierra Vista yesterday, and Sheriff Daniels told me that they started a program called ALICE, where the kids are actually taught what to do if an active shooter comes in. And it's not to just sit there and be victims because typically they'll go cluster and they're like sitting ducks uh, for the assailant. And the better policy would be to teach them how to fight back. One specific question in this one of these recent shootings, uh, the 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 shooter went out and bought an AR-15 in a matter of a couple of hours before the actual shooting. What on earth would be the problem with a brief waiting period? I well, mean, if somebody's gone nuts and, you know— that Would that have really it, turned up any difference for this kid? I don't kid? know. Probably I, I not. Don't, I, I don't Pro- know. Probably you know, not. You I, know, you talk somebody off a ledge who's about to jump off a bridge, most of them— a day later won't commit Look, suicide. We've got some really good laws on the books, mm-hmm. and if they were all being enforced, we'd be a lot safer. Mm-hmm. I think that the key is you, you go back to you know what's happened in law enforcement. I, I sat with uh, Jerry Williams. I'm on the board of a group called uh, the uh, Child Help USA, mm-hmm. and she was telling me they're down 500 officers. They can't get officers right now because they don't feel like the public has their backs. I think we need a lot more cooperation and work, you know, with law enforcement to make sure that our streets are safe. And that includes safe schools. Also, the design of the schools, are we designing them in such a way that there is only one way to get in and it's and it's and it's guarded and it's protected? Of course, if you if you uh, garrison the schools successfully, that that leaves shopping centers, hospitals, every other you know, school well, is maybe well, the most horrific. Because I, I, it's well, and I also think that you know when you're when you're dealing with kids. I have nine grandchildren. Eight of them are in the public schools in Arizona, and you should never have to wonder if your kids are going to come back. Mm-hmm. So, new subject: yeah. education. Arizona is sitting on four or five billion dollars of excess fund. Right. Should any of that, and if so, how much of that go to public education? I think we've got to fund, fundamentally change the way that we pay teachers. Uh, this idea that every teacher gets the same pay increase every year, regardless mm-hmm. of what kind of job they do, to me, it's nuts. Uh, it doesn't work in any industry or any, anywhere in the real world. People should be rewarded based on a meritocracy, and we should start paying teachers based on their results, uh, and really great teachers should be making over $100,000 a year. I believe that. I know how to be a really great teacher. Give me the best students in the world, and I'll do great. Well, but you that's know, a cop-out. Give, give me a room That's a, that's full a of cop-out. I, I, I worked for ASU for the last four and a half mm-hmm. years, and we started a charter school right in the heart of South Phoenix. These would not be considered the best students mm-hmm. because they come from a socioeconomic class that's, that's pretty low on the totem pole. And tr- traditionally, those are the ones you're going to say are not going to succeed. And guess what? They have a 100% graduation rate, 100%. And 98% of those kids go on to something beyond high school, uh, either a community college or a four-year baccalaureate degree or trade school. Mm-hmm. You can get results. In fact, I think it's kind of a racist statement to say that uh, minority kids learn uh, are not as apt to learn. That's not accurate. No, I'd say, I'd it's, say- it's simply yeah. giving them – 
high standards and high expectations and uh, and not dumbing everything down. Well, also, I mean, the huge part is the, if the parents are motivated. If well, the parents I, get it that that's important, they go, I mean, have you, Sonny, have you done your homework? But let's also yeah. figure out ways to get more retirees involved in the classroom, mentoring kids and, and tutoring kids. Uh, and I know that the teachers union folks don't like the fact that they have outsiders coming in. But you know what? There's a lot of folks that would be willing to uh, roll up their sleeves and try to help improve our educational system. The other thing that I believe with all my heart is that we ought to have real competition. I believe that every kid uh, should uh, – their parents should be able to pick the schools that they go to and the tax dollars should follow the child. I think when you got real competition – just like you do in any other arena in life, you're going to get a better product. And people who have to compete and actually understand the parents are not my enemy. They're actually my customers. And I ought to be doing everything I can to make sure that they're happy. So is it that the teachers aren't good enough or they're not trying? I don't know. I think the system has problems. I think the system has problems. And I think we ought to stop caring so much about systems and care more about outcomes. Okay, another question. Yeah. Roe v. Wade, assuming that that comes down the way it's expected to, that essentially will either invalidate or constrain Roe v. Wade, what, if anything, would you propose in the way of specific legislation in this area in, this area in Arizona? Actually, I think the laws that are on the books are reasonable and fair. I'm, I'm a, a pro-life, have been my whole life, and I'm, I'm not going to be changing now. I, I support... Uh, the idea that our founding fathers did that uh, uh, our government is about protecting life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And I can't think of any more innocent life than the unborn. Okay. we got uh, less than a minute. If there's one thing you want people to remember about your candidacy, what is it? I want them to ask themselves as they look, uh, as they go to the polls, who can most effectively manage this state? Look at the other candidates that I'm running against in the Republican primary. I think the answer is going to be clear. I have a background of accomplishment, both in the private sector as an entrepreneur and a businessman, and uh, 10 years as a U.S. congressman, four years as a state senator. I'm ready to do this. We've got some serious issues in Arizona that need fixing and managing, and I'm ready to do it. Okay. Matt Salmon, candidate for governor. Uh, Thank you much for being here. Uh, We hope to complete the set. If we hear from Carrie Lake, she's invited and welcome Well, good luck on that one. The door's open here. All right. That's what I said before, and it's what I say now. We'll see you in just a moment with the rest of the show. The Think Tank, KTAR News on 92.3 FM and KTAR.com. We are back in the think tank. Our thanks to Matt Salmon, Republican candidate for governor. Uh, Second of three in this segment, we had slated uh, Carrie Lake to join us. She had committed to come here at 7 o'clock this morning. I got an email saying that uh, she had a scheduling conflict. The the door is still open. And uh, as a result of that, Terry Goddard is is joining us. And I I appreciate your being here on extraordinary uh, short notice. Uh, You are somebody that, in addition to having been attorney general and mayor of Phoenix, knows something about uh, running for governor. Um, 
Not with a happy outcome, but most, most, <laughs> mo- a lot more candidates ended up as well, you did. Let's just Only say one it went. gave me the opportunity to do other things. Yeah, indeed, indeed. Uh, more time with your family. That's is the right. usual one, right? Uh, the um, in in the break we were talking about, and you did just listen in on the on the Matt Salmon. Uh, Discussion, and I don't want to focus on that because I'm not doing that with anybody else. Mm-hmm. But, but broadly speaking, you made the observation that the uh, immigration issue is kind of sucking the air out of the discussion of many more important things, which is particularly troublesome given that. The governor of Arizona, and this this is where I want you to pick up, really doesn't have a whole lot to do with immigration. That is the fact. Uh, It is one of the constitutional duties of the federal government. And uh, that is – you can – the governor can and often does uh, rail about whether or not the federal government is doing their job. Mm -hmm. And we certainly heard uh, Congressman Salmon uh, do that. but the fact that they really don't have immigration authority, they don't have border authority, um, they can, as we've seen, occasionally do support roles for what mm-hmm. the feds are doing. But it just mystifies me how that can become such a issue in the governor's race because the next governor of Arizona, whoever that may be, is not going to be determining immigration policy or – border protection policy. There are some exceptions. I I was one, frankly, as attorney general. We did a lot of work on going after the cartels, something that former Congressman Salmon was very eloquent about was that the the cartels are basically a blight on humanity and need to be exterminated. Um, I agree with him. I, I think that is a criminal enterprise that deserves our attention. And we went after their money. We went after the uh, the, the, the illegal uh, laundering of money that, that allows it to go from drug trade in the United States and human smuggling in the United States into the pockets of the cartels in Mexico and elsewhere. And, uh, and their five feeds the beast, allows them to have the power that uh, makes them so, so dominant in the, on the border. Um, so there are some things you can do, but you have to be very careful that it's within your legal parameters. And, and all of this uh, uh, beating of gums, frankly, in the primary uh, about border policy is, is, I think, taking our eye off the ball. What Governors, candidates should talk about what governors actually do. Well, and of course, even your own example was what an attorney general could do, not what a governor could do. That's right. I, I, I don't, and I, as a former attorney general, I don't want the governor interfering with that. But, you know, there are some aspects about border security which other local officials can, can help with. Uh, and, and our movement against uh, the, the, uh, the funds was one of them. Uh, and, and it's really too bad. I've, I, as you mentioned, I've, I've been through this uh, uh, where – you're in a campaign. It's about trying to lead the state. And yet what ends up being the dominant issue uh, often are things that the next governor has little or nothing to do. And what does that give the the uh, the, the, the voters to judge on? It's not real. There's one point I, I commend him for this. I like uh, former Congressman Salmon. I think he's a stand-up guy and I think he's had a great career in public service. Um, and he had one point where he said sort of wistfully, you know, it would be nice to be looking ahead and talk about safe streets and water and our economy. 
And I thought, amen, brother. That's exactly what all the candidates should be doing instead of sort of burning up the airways on immigration and the last election. But if you poll voters, and particularly if you poll Republican voters, what is the most important issue? I guarantee you that immigration is currently number one amongst Republicans. You'll notice the Democrats aren't talking too much about this because the polling among Democrats and therefore the voters in a Democratic primary, that is not as salient an issue. And so it is not discussed. And one of the most fatal things I think that any candidate for any office can say is, well, voter, I know that your number one priority is X. <laughs> but I want to talk about but, Y. <laughs> but, but, I can't, but I can't do anything about X because people don't understand a great deal about you know, the difference between federal, state, local responsibilities, that they, they just know it's an issue. And if it's real important to them, they want somebody, everybody, to do something about it. I can't, you know, it's not my job to do that. Doesn't play very well. Well, I don't want to blame it back on the voters, but but they ought to pay better attention. <laughs> um, you know, when you're electing somebody to be governor, you're not electing them to be president or senator. Um, and and that level, that's not asking for so much in terms of a sophisticated or semi-sophisticated mm-hmm. analysis of exactly what your vote means. And, and so it's a two-way street. I think the... Uh, the uh, as you describe it, and I think accurately, the the candidates pander to what the polls show them mm-hmm. are the number one votes, and the voters have made it the number one vote by not paying attention to what the legal parameters mm-hmm. of the vote office that they're voting for are. So, it, it's there's a lot of blame to go around. Uh, I, I think uh, while we're talking about the border, uh, you know, isn't it a shame that the complex and difficult issue of Immigration reform, in other words, who gets to legally cross our border, has been punted for 20 years at the national level by both parties. Mm-hmm. And that's that's where the real hard work happens. And that's where uh, many years ago John McCain and Ted Kennedy were the leaders from the respective parties to try to get it right. And unfortunately, they failed. Uh, it wasn't possible. And then to McCain took a lesson from that, and he wanted to build the dang fence after well, that, I, did, as I recall. He, he was also a, a, a strong bipartisan supporter uh, when it was possible mm-hmm. of getting that job done. And unfortunately, and we look back with real, real shame about that, because instead of taking a dysfunctional system and making it hopefully work for the good of this country, uh, they ended up perpetuating the dysfunction. And that's what what comes down to this day. Well, uh, I think this has been one of the uh, most enduring changes in our politics is there is currently almost no reward for working things out, working with the other side, which is the only way at a 50-50 politics you get anything done. And um, you get political points for bomb throwing. You don't get anything for for working things out because your own your own flank will get you for not being far enough on their side. And unfortunately, both sides take a negotiated result and say it's not enough. Mm-hmm. You can guarantee that. I don't I don't care what the issue is. They, they, they will they will say that. And so rather than try to get an intelligent compromise, mm-hmm. uh, people go back in their foxholes. Well, we see this. I mean, this is also very current on guns, right? Um, 
and uh, to the to the pro gun lobby doing anything at all is well that's a that's just a first step towards confiscation and on the other side almost any compromise that you get through is not going to end the problem it's going to going to do something at best around the edges a little bit well i thought president biden addressed that pretty well first with the word enough mm-hmm. congress needs to understand that America wants to stop the slaughter. And sure, none of these individual, whether it's banning high uh, uh, super large magazines or doing the background checks or having the red alert, uh, no one of those is going to stop the school shootings. But it is an effort to try to work around the edges and to try to get back in with the rest of the world. I'm sure you've seen the the, the statute, the, the the graphs that show the United States is in a class by itself mm-hmm. in terms of thousands of people dying by gun violence. Other countries don't do it that way. And, and they have they also have mental illness problems and all of the other things. The only thing they don't have is the prevalence of guns. Yes. And what's extraordinary about that issue is it's one of the few where there is a consensus about what to do. Uh, the most of the things that the president alluded to have 80 to 90 percent support. That's as high as it gets. Mm-hmm. You know, we talked, uh, uh, you know, some and another show we talked about your uh, dark money proposal getting like 85 percent that you just don't get that. Well, if you had a referendum on background checks, you'd get. Let me let me numbers take it to a, a different yeah. level because I I, I have a, a son who's twenty three years old and and is very very much in tune with popular culture, and and his his friends use the gun issue as an example as to why our government fails. In other words, there are common sense solutions out there, and they basically said, why does this system work if it continues to have the slaughters in the schools that we're seeing that and and what you just mm-hmm. described if in truth 80 to 90 percent of the people are for for example uh, doing background checks more mm-hmm. thoroughly are for it do we really have a representative government anymore uh, and and the the, the disillusionment of young people is really fearsome mm-hmm. yeah fair fair question um, and and probably the most singular example because uh, on immigration, uh, you wouldn't get eighty or ninety percent consensus probably on any proposal. I guarantee, uh, you know, guarantee. Uh, but but uh, but in the because issue of guns, you do, and it's almost singular in that regard. I mean, I can't think of anything. You know, it's in in that well, in general, if you have democracy working, if there's a consensus on something, you've probably done it. Uh, just like if problems were, if a solution to something was easy, we would have done it. The only problems that are left are the problems that are hard. But nobody wants to hear a a politician saying, you know, it's really more complicated than that, even if it is. Well, I'm I'm dealing every day in the Arizona water issues with climate change. And uh, we are facing a... Can I I cut that up? We're way over half. But we will open the next segment and we will talk about water with Terry Goddard when we return in just a moment in the Think Tank. The Think Tank. KTAR News on 92.3 FM and KTAR.com. We're back with Terry Goddard, uh, commiserating on the state of our (laughs) politics, and particularly 
the tendency of uh, kind of the issue of the day to squeeze out often what are more significant issues and the the unsexiest issue that I can think of that may be more consequential than anything else is water, particularly water in our desert. Amen to that. Uh, and, and I give uh, former Congressman uh, Salmon uh, high marks for mentioning among the things that he said he would like to be talking about. He did say water mm-hmm. was one of them. And and there's something the governor does have a say. So uh, the governor appoints the director of uh, the the Department of Water Quali- uh, Water Resources. Um, he or she is is intimately involved in representing our state in the ongoing discussions within the Colorado River Basin on exactly what role Arizona will have in the future. Uh, those decisions are going to be made in the next gubernatorial term uh, that affect all of us that live in this area. They're going to affect us pro- profoundly. And that should be, in my humble opinion, the thing that both parties should be talking about almost to the exclusion of anything else because what is more fundamental to life in the desert than having adequate water? What How- is more fundamental to our economy than having adequate water for industry and for jobs? Uh, I can't think of anything. I've been here 40 some odd years. Uh, I've heard water the whole time. But the sense I get is this time we're talking about almost now. We've always taken however much we've said about our belief in water, and Arizona has planned pretty well. I mean, you look back historically, we 1980 been, water complex, which which was compact, which was regarded as a model. It was a model, and and uh, the, that led to the implementation of the Central Arizona Project that I'm privileged to work on right now, um, the Salt River Project, one of the great reclamation efforts, and done because the foresighted ranchers in Central Arizona, in order to stop the annual floods. Mortgage their farms to pay for the dams. Which is why they still have disproportion. They still control the board because they've got one vote per acre. Yes, they do. Um, But nonetheless, I think they were farsighted and they cared about the water future. Unfortunately, on top of that, and perhaps because we did good planning, um, Arizona's got a little profligate. Uh, We've got some, frankly, very uh, wasteful activities within our state. And the reason that's important to me is as we negotiate with other states and as there is an increasingly urgent shortage on the Colorado, things like Fountain Hills are not serving us well because the other states are going to say, look, what kind of a water ethic do you have when anything we allocate to you gets pumped up in the air or gets used on golf courses or gets used for flood irrigation of spacious lawns? These are all things that uh, are, frankly, water wasting. And I think at least in the future, we need to have a very much tighter rein on them. And cities are beginning to to say a water plan has to be part of our future. A conserving water plan has to be part of our future. Now, the water people that I've had on this show say that if we break it down, the really big use is agriculture. Not anymore. Not in central Arizona. Because, and, and I think you're right, they, 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 for a long time at the Central Arizona Project, uh, of the water that we brought to Central Arizona, the 1.5 million acre feet per year, uh, the overwhelming majority was used for farming. Um, but as of 2022, January 1st, 
uh, the Secretary of the Interior declared a Tier 1 shortage. And because Arizona has the lowest priority on the river, that basically meant 512,000 acre feet came off of the top from the water delivered to central Arizona, and that was all agricultural water. And we're last because of last in the pecking order because of prior agreements. Prior agreements that led to the funding of the Central Arizona Project. Bear in mind, back in the 60s, uh, California was taking far more than the water it was allocated under the compact, the Colorado River Compact. They were taking they, they, they were allocated 4.4 million acre feet. That was confirmed by the lawsuit between Arizona and California. But California, in fact, was taking 5.2 or 3 or 4. They were taking a lot more than they're entitled. Well, the CAP was designed to take the rest of Arizona's share. Arizona, by the compact, was allocated 2.8 million acre feet. About 1.1 was used on the river, mostly for agriculture. So that left, uh, you know, do the math, 2.6, 1.7, that just passed on and became part of the water that California used. Well, obviously, California was not really excited about Arizona getting their full share because they were using it. And as a consequence, their their congresspeople all opposed the CAP back in the early 60s. The change was made partly because, and I can't emphasize this enough, great Arizona representation in Congress, really giant people. Uh, Both parties worked together, hand in glove. Uh, John Rhodes and Morris K. Udall were the two giants that made it happen because they had such credibility throughout the Congress. But the other thing was Arizona finally was willing to take the last priority, which meant California then was sure that they'd continue to get their 4.4 even if we got zero in central Arizona. That's what the priority system means. And so that's that why comes took- to play when the water flow goes down, which is down. It is down. It is down significantly. And that's the point I wanted to make. We started this conversation talking about issues on which the public has consensus. You mentioned many of the gun safety issues, and I agree. I think there's a there's a very serious disconnect there. But there's another disconnect on the whole issue of climate change. I think the American public is more and more aware that we've got to do something and we've got to do it fast. Uh, I think they're very supportive of even extreme measures that will reduce uh, the amount of carbon that we use that ends up uh, increasing the the the, uh, uh, the the carbon in the atmosphere. But what we're dealing with in the Colorado Basin right now is a direct result of global of global warming of climate change. Uh, the average the temperature has gone up in the Rockies almost three degrees on average, and what that means is. Water that falls, a normal rainfall, a normal full of snowpack that fall in the Rockies used to run off into Lake Powell, you know, our made upper basin reservoir. They don't anymore. Uh, last year we had relative, just slightly below normal uh, precipitation, and we had the second lowest flow into Lake Powell in history. And now we found Lake Powell dropping to dangerous levels, levels at which uh, it's questionable whether they can continue to do releases from that, that lake. Lake Mead is similarly. We talk about the bathtub ring. Lake Mead is at historically low levels. And that means, A, hydropower goes away, but, B, the flow of the river is in risk. And so a river that we divided up on the anticipation that there would be 16.5 or more acre feet, million acre feet a year – we now think, based on hydrological information, that it's less than 11 million acre feet. So it's not hard to say, 
the consequence that the next governor of Arizona is going to have to be intimately involved in how do we handle a shortage? How do we handle a wonderful water supply that has done us huge benefit over many years, ever since 1985 when the first Colorado River water came into central Arizona? But now it's going to be a whole lot less. What are we looking at? Okay, short, but how bad? What are we in the in the next year or so? What are we What are we looking at? Well, it's it's it. it we're looking at cities and tribes who are the primary uh, holders of the highest rights of water, uh, doing a much better job of management, doing a much more aggressive job, and all of us are going to be part of that, uh, of of helping to conserve. And that means I mentioned a couple of uses that I think are going to have to be curtailed and maybe eliminated. Uh, let's start with the fountain that, that mm-hmm. spurs water up in the desert. Let's go with flood irrigation in the major parts of Phoenix. Mm-hmm. That's 45,000 acre feet a year. That's an awful lot of water that could be used for municipal safety purposes. So we've got to look hard at our budget for water, and we need to conserve. Terry Goddard, looking at our future. Once again, appreciate your coming in, especially on short notice. You can reach me at mikeoneal.org. There's a link there to social media as well as to email and other means of, of, of reaching me. And we'll see you next week in the Think Tank.